Welcome to the Mobile Home Park Expert Podcast. Today we are live talking about the future of the 1031 Exchange. And joining me, as always, is my good friend, Glenn Esterson. Glenn, how are you? I'm doing fabulous, Jason. Yeah, for those of you for those of you out there who don't know Glenn, um, Glenn has a, in the 20 plus years Glenn has been in the commercial real estate. He has brokered hundreds of millions of dollars worth of affordable housing apartments, manufactured housing, and RV communities throughout the United States. He's successfully brokered in nearly every region in the U.S. and has transacted more than 300 times for his clients. In addition to his work as a broker, Glenn is a former MHC operator um, and owner and has a number of small businesses and owned other commercial real estate assets. Most recently, Glenn has authored and published the industry's newest book called The Mobile Home Park Manifesto, which I love. I highly suggest that you go on Amazon and get it. And Glenn uh, Glenn is also doing a bunch of education stuff. Glenn's team, the Esterson MHC team, is quickly gaining a reputation as one of the top brokerage teams in the industry. Damn, Glenn, that is quite a resume you have there. <laughs> hey, took a minute, huh? It took a minute. <laughs> doesn't yeah. happen. Doesn't happen overnight. But I know why everybody is tuning in today, and that's to to listen and get words of wisdom from our guest, Mr. Michael Brady. Michael, how are you? I'm doing real well, Jason. Yeah, yeah, thank Mike, you both for having me on today. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And Michael is with Madison 1031 Exchange. You can go to. Is that Madison 1031? Is that it? Did I say it wrong? Yeah, we go by both. So we're the official name of the company is Madison Exchange, but we use Madison 1031 quite a bit. Easier yeah. to remember. Awesome. Just a little background on you, Michael. So Michael S. Brady Esquire, a lawyer, is executive vice president of Madison 1031 Exchange, a national qualified intermediary for tax deferred exchanges pursuant with the International Revenue Code 1031. As a certified exchange specialist and attorney, his responsibilities include consulting with clients and their advisors on the regulations affecting 1031 exchanges, as well as giving seminars for attorneys, accountants, real estate professionals, and publishing articles on tax and legal issues. As an attorney, Mr. Brady has over 20 years of experience representing clients in commercial and residential real estate transactions, as well as a wide variety of business transactions and commercial litigation matters. Man, Michael, you've been busy too. <laughs> I guess that's just another way of saying I'm getting old, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to use that line someday. So let's just jump into it. We have a lot to cover today and only 60 minutes. So let's start out with the basics. What is the origin of the 1031 exchange and what is it? Yes. Yeah, so it's important, I think, especially in the current context to realize that the concept of tax deferred exchanges has been part of the tax code since the 1920s. The concept actually has just turned 100 years old. Right. So this is not some recent loophole. This is part of the fabric of the modern tax code. And essentially, it was designed to allow real estate property uh, owners to trade their properties. Right. So if Glenn had, you know, a piece of property that I was interested in buying and I had a piece of property that Glenn was interested in buying, if we traded deeds, that's automatically a tax deferred 1031 exchange. OK, you don't need a qualified intermediary in the middle. This is what it was designed for. And the recognition is that if two parties do that and there's no money changing hands, well, why should they have to pay taxes? 
right? What are they going to pay taxes with? Nobody's making any money. They're getting a property for a property. So that means that if we did that and we had to recognize gain pay taxes, Glenn and I each have to break open our piggy bank and pay Uncle Sam, <clears throat> excuse me, in the various levels of government, you know, uh, pretty significant amounts of taxes. And so that's why it's permitted. Basically, it just is recognizing that investors are continuing their investment um, in a different form, right? They're not really breaking it out and cashing out and receiving money. They're receiving property. So that doesn't happen that often in the modern sector. It's very rare that two parties have properties that the other likes. And, you know, usually you got a mortgage you got to pay off, you know, if you're going to transfer the property. So that complicates things. And so in the 90s, approximately, they created this structure whereby they created an independent entity that in the middle, a middleman called a qualified intermediary who will basically exchange with the taxpayer. So if Glenn wanted to sell to you, Jason, you know, he could do that and he could buy a property from me. And what would happen, though, for tax purposes, he would give his property to a qualified intermediary like Madison 1031. Madison then would sell the property to you. Right. They would take the proceeds from you and then they would buy a property from me and they would give that to Glenn in exchange for the property that he gave them. Okay, so now that that's a pretty cumbersome transaction, right? You have two sets of deeds on each side of the transaction. And, you know, if you know anything about real estate, you know, I'm sure Glenn has seen this plenty of times. There are transaction costs every time you sell or transfer a property. You got deed recording fees. You got transfer taxes in many jurisdictions, right? Title insurance. And we we own a title insurance company, also Madison Title. And sure, they would love to have four sets of premiums on a transaction like this. But the Treasury recognized that. And the IRS recognized that. And so they said that it's sufficient that you don't actually have to take title to the property as a qualified intermediary. It's enough if we take assignment of both contracts and really all that has to happen is the money has to flow through us so that the taxpayer doesn't have receipt of the funds because they have the receipt of the funds, they have to pay taxes on it. And so we keep the money out of their hands so they're receiving a property for a property. And that's essentially how it works. Wow. <laughs> it, it sounds complicated and simple at the same time how does how does one even get started i and glenn like your experience of this like why is it important and how does somebody get even get started on this path well it helps keep money moving in this industry and it helps people recapitalize in this industry and you know that's you know real estate is how we move money you know and it's how we gain wealth and, and it's you're just trading up the whole time it can really be beneficial to go through the 1031 instead of cashing out, paying the tax man, and then buying another park, park or property park, whatever you have to buy. Rinse and repeating that, you end up being able to step up your basis with 1031 and avoid a lot of that, that tax charge. So you have more essential money that you're able to keep putting back into the market, keep stimulating further the economy. So I, I think that's you know why it's kind of critical. And without without the 1031 I have a feeling a lot of investors are going to not look as fondly on real estate transactions for their investments and for their portfolio and wealth building as they do right now, because it, it could be, it could jeopardize a lot of that wealth creation. Um, you know, I, I want to go back a little bit to some of this history here because the history of the 1031, most people don't even think about it, but they, you know, as Michael was saying, you know, 1920s and, uh, it's been around forever. It's not. It's not a new concept. I mean, it, it's changed over time a little bit. You know, it used to have to be this exact type of asset for that exact type of asset. You know, and, and then it changed to like kind, and that opened up a, a little bit even further. 
to now today, it doesn't even really have to be like kind. It just has to be commercial property for commercial property. And, that, and even more so, I've seen people do commercial property for what I think is ultimately residential property that they eventually move into a residential property, but run it as a commercial property for a couple of years as a rental property or so. And so it's given us a lot more room to navigate, makes the transaction a lot easier because maybe you're an opportunist type buyer that's one day buying hotels and the next day buying retail centers and the next day, you know, buying mobile home communities. And so, you know, to try and find somebody that has the exact thing to fit you makes it too hard, but as an opportunist, this gives you the ability to go from one vertical to another vertical and still retain the tax benefits through one exchange. Um, and we, they, we used to call these things a starker exchange, you know, and like I hadn't heard that term in, in 10, 15 years. Last week, somebody called me up and I'm looking to do a starker exchange. You know, and I said, it took me a minute to remember what that was. <laughs> hey, guys, and, I just have a quick question. Can, can, I just want to make sure we got the, did this start in the 20s or the 90s or both? Did it have a version in the 20s? I just I got yeah. a little confused. So the direct swap of two parties trading properties, that concept started in the 1920s. The qualified intermediary, um, and there were different structures in between that people created without kind of having the blessing of the IRS. Gotcha. Um, but the IRS gave their blessing and Treasury gave their blessing through Treasury regs in, I think it was 1991, the final regulations were issued, where you had a qualified intermediary involved in the middle. So, so that means that my first step is uh, I got to find a qualified mediary. If I'm planning on making a sale and I know I want to use the 1031 exchange to my benefit, I have to engage someone like you. Correct. And yeah. it has to be announced on the contract. Okay, that you're buying, that you're going to be participating in a 1031. You know, there's there's steps along the way. And then once you actually, you know, go through the, the sale of your property, a timeline starts. Okay. Right. And you're you're under you're under a very short window ultimately when you know it seems like there's deals everywhere when you're out here just looking for deals and you're not under a timeline. But yeah. boy, the moment you get under the gun with this thing, that timeline is real short. It's a 45-day window and 180-day maximum for the close. And as far as I know, Mike might have something to say, there is no extending either one of those windows. They did a little bit of extension during COVID, but that was that was like the first time ever, as far as I know. And I think they've since repealed that. Um, but uh, Mike, why don't you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, so I, first of all, I would agree with Jason. You know, One of the first things that you should do is talk to a qualified intermediary. But before you even do that, you really should be talking to your accountant, right? Because you want to make sure this transaction makes sense. Make sure you have a gain that's worth deferring. And because, uh, you know, sometimes people have losses that they don't realize that can offset gains. You know, there's other things. So talk to your accountant. Um, you know, I do a lot of seminars for accountants and I always ask, you know, I always say that. We say, I'm on your side. I tell you, your clients to talk to you first. How often does that happen? Right. And they laugh. Right? Hey, they guys. Usually, <laughs> hey, guys, we, ha we have a quick question. Somebody who's yeah. looking for some clarification. Mr. Gordon Clement wants to know, I need clarification of a drop and swap. What is a drop and swap? Okay, yeah, that's kind of an advanced concept. Before I jump into that, I just wanted to kind of get to the, uh, the question. So as far as extension, so, um, you know, Glenn's correct, 45 days you have from the closing of your sale to identify 180 days to close on the purchase from the closing of the sale. So it goes by very quick. The extensions, they did give it an extension for COVID. Quite frankly, the way they did it, in my opinion, was half-assed. Um, it didn't make a lot of sense the way they did it. Um, it helped a lot. It helped a lot of people, but you know, it was a lot of people that could have been helped if they had just been a little bit more Gracious. thoughtful in the way they, they drafted it. Uh, there have also been extensions for 
if the taxpayer or their property is impacted by a federally declared natural disaster. And we just had that with West Virginia. We've had it with California wildfires. In New York, we had Superstorm Sandy a couple of years ago. So that's other times that they've extended those deadlines. Um, yeah, so the drop and swap is a structure by, this is really kind of advanced, but if you're in a partnership, right, an LLC with multiple partners, and when you sell it, the partners want to separate, well, that becomes problematic because essentially the taxpayer that owns the property has to buy the replacement property. And if you're in a partnership, that's a separate taxable entity, or this includes an LLC with multiple members. And so that LLC would have to acquire the replacement property. So if the partners in the partnership want to basically separate from each other, they can't do that in the partnership. So they need to get out of the partnership typically before they close on the sale. How long before? That's kind of subject to conjecture. But uh, essentially what you would do is you would deed the property from the partnership to the partners as tenants in common. So each individual partner would be an owner of the property directly rather than through the entity. Then as individuals, they can go on their merry way and some can do exchanges, some can cash out but they're all separate. Um, the, I, the issue becomes one of holding period because you have to hold the property for investment rather than a resale. And the IRS in the past has said that if you do this on the eve of closing, the partners, even the, the, the partnership owned the property for 10 years, the individuals may have only held the property for 10 minutes. And so they could disallow the exchange on that basis. The IRS doesn't seem to really be challenging those transactions. They've lost a couple of similar transactions in the tax courts. But some of the states have kind of taken notice of this. And California, for instance, is very aggressively pursuing drop and swap transactions, even though they lost a big case in their own courts. And where I am in New York as well. So you have to kind of just take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. That brings up a great question just to follow up with this. How often do these 1031, you know, either a drop and swap or just a standard 1031 get challenged? And, 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 and what's, what's that like, you know, and, and, and how much jeopardy do you as the investor get yourself into when it, when it gets challenged like that? Um, in general, and this may have changed, can always change, obviously, but uh, the statistics show that 1031 exchanges were not audited more frequently, at least on the federal level, than your, your standard tax return. Um, I think the stats at one point I saw is like 1.5% of all. 1 to 2%. Yeah. Okay. And I think it was closer to 2 to 2.2% 2. 2 of 1031 exchange you know, tax returns were audited uh, on the federal level. But the states, again, can be more aggressive. And so New York State, for instance, actually is looking at deed recordings when you have exchanges to see when there might have been a drop or a swap. They look at refinancing. And so, you know, in that case, I, I don't have statistics, but, you know, in those states, it's probably a little bit more frequent than a little bit more. Were. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, hey, so I, we've got to move on to the next question, set, guys. So I want to ask, what's going on with 1031 now? Is there some new things? Is there speculation happening? What is drawing so much attention to it? So um, President Biden, when he campaigned, had actually brought up indirectly as a way to pay for some of the, the initiatives he was in favor of. Uh, some tax law changes. And 1031 exchanges were kind of mentioned in that regard uh, as kind of something that was viewed as only benefiting the wealthy, you know, and he had basically pledged that he would not raise taxes on the middle class, but that would raise taxes on, you know, uh, I think the top, 
you know, 1% to the top 0.01% or something like that. So um, that kind of took the form of the American Families Plan, which quite frankly, I think, you know, calls for a lot of good things. And some of the infrastructure things that the president's advocating, I think are beneficial also, but they're looking to pay for it through, you know, revenue raisers and tax increases. So one of the things that they've looked to do is limit 1031 exchanges to $500,000 of deferred gain per year per taxpayer. At least that's what it looks like. A lot of this stuff is still being fleshed out, but that would mean that, you know, as a taxpayer, if you had multiple properties, um, and one had a $500,000 gain and you sold it, that would be it. You'd be able to do more exchange, no more exchanges. Or if you sold a property that had, you know, a million dollar gain, which is not unusual in the New York marketplace, you could get a million dollar gain on a condo apartment in Manhattan, for instance, uh, you would be limited to basically deferring $500,000 of, of uh, capital gain and have to pay tax on the balance. Now, so, yeah. isn't this something I've heard in my career numerous times during various campaigns and presidential, you know, hoopla stuff that these guys pander to say, we're going to get, you know, we're going to look at this thing as a, as a potential source for us to, to get rid of and blah, blah, blah. And it has yet in my career, okay, you know, this is 2000 yet to happen. And that's not a red or blue. That's, that's every president except our last president that has put this as a potential thing. And it doesn't ever seem to materialize. Um, yeah. So it was mentioned in a couple of Biden, uh, Biden, I'm sorry, Obama's budgets. You know, he actually at one at one point proposed limiting the 1031 exchanges to a million dollars of gain. Uh, and you, know, you can't let the last president off the hook either, because the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, uh, when they were implementing that or when they were actually uh, negotiating it, initially it called for an elimination of 1031 exchanges and ultimately resulted in an elimination of 1031 exchanges for personal property. You know, so we used to do exchanges of things like aircraft. We used to do exchanges of collectible artwork, you know, and that was all eliminated in 2017. So oh, I didn't realize that. That, that yeah. was a question actually Jason asked me the other day. Does the 1031 just apply to real estate or is it also for businesses and for other uh, assets of, of various natures? And, and it was my understanding that it was also for businesses and other assets. Um, is, is that not an accurate statement anymore? Yeah, so not a business per se, but you used to be able to do the personal, like the, the equipment of a business, right? So if you sold a restaurant, you can sell the, you know, you can do an asset sale and exchange the assets. After 2017, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, that was eliminated. It is only real estate now. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, oh. I, 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 <laughs> Uh, so, so you're right. I mean, this is, you know, we haven't been, we have been on the chopping block before. It's always a concern, you know, as an industry, we don't like to see our, uh, <laughs> our tax code provision in the paper, uh, but it's not the first rodeo. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of negotiation to be done before I think this package is finalized. But this time it, it feels a little bit more real, doesn't it? It feels like we're, we're, we're we've incrementally gotten closer to this ultimate goal of whoever's up there making this for gold to get rid of this 1031 and, you know, it, it is putting a lot of us on alert, on alert. Yeah. And it is, it's seemingly right now amplifying through the markets. And we're seeing more velocity in transactions as people are worried that the future of the 1031 might disappear. So get it now. And recently I heard that they might do some retroactive type of thing with this, with this uh, new pack. Yeah, so they just released the Green Book, which kind of uh, explores a little bit more uh, what the proposal actually is. And so 
it, in reading it, it pretty it seems clear that if it were to pass, 1031 exchanges would survive the year and it would be effective January 1st of 2022. What would not what's not clear is they're also talking about raising the capital gains tax rates, which are really low right now compared to you know earned income. Um, you know, we're talking about a 20%, you know, federal rate versus, you know, the highest income rate, I think is 37% now. Um, and there's a 3.8% net investment income tax that kicks in. So you're talking about 23.8% is the highest long-term federal capital gain rate for real estate. So they're talking about raising that almost to double the 37% or 40.8% if you include the net investment income tax. Um, that it's not clear in reading the green book when that would take effect, you know, so they talked about uh, it would take effect after the date of announcement, whatever that means. And if they're referring to the date of announcement of the American families plan, well, that's April 28th of this year, you know, so, you know, so there is some guessing that it might be retroactive. I personally think that they would be hard pressed to do that. I think so. too. Um, yeah. Just, you know, people are selling properties all year now, like now you're going to tell them, you know, your tax rate doubled. Uh, so I don't see, I don't see that happening, but you know, who knows? I, I could be wrong. I know we got to kind of start hustling here. So yeah, we, uh, yeah. we, yeah, we have, we have a question um, from uh, an audience member, Tasha Salas writes, if you do not want to continue reinvesting your money in real estate, what are the options to defer cap gain taxes with 1031? It's a great question. It's a great question. We get it all the time. And, and Michael, I'm sure you got a lot to say about this. one. Yeah. So really, well, first of all, the one technique that under current tax law that works is you can swap until you drop, right? So you can do exchanges during the course of your lifetime, build your gains up and up and up, and then you drop dead and you're under current tax law, you get your state gets a step up in basis and the capital gains disappears, right? So that's probably the most uh, beneficial tax planning you can do is to die owning the property. Short of that, there's not a lot of good uh, alternatives. There are some though. So number one, um, you could do something called that's called an up retransaction, which is a little bit involved. So you could do a 1031 exchange into a Delaware statutory trust, which is an institutional grade property that is managed by a land trust. Uh, usually it's an institutional like REIT like sponsor that will manage the property. They then could do what's called a 721 exchange, essentially up retransaction and pull that property into their REIT. So they would give the owners of the DST, the Delaware Statutory Trust, OP units or partnership interests in the REIT itself. And now you own a REIT rather than real estate. Okay. If you then sold that, you'd have to pay capital gains tax, but that kind of gets you out of real estate per se. And but you're also maybe subject more on that. You're also subject to the criteria of that REIT and whether or not they want to take it. It's not just an open free for all on that one. It's a very select and small box that yeah. your asset has to fit into for that REIT to want to even offer that opportunity to you. Well, now what's what's happening is the REITs are actually setting it up. So they're giving, they're putting the property into the DST. They know they want it. They put the property into DST with the understanding that they're going to bring it up. But you're right. It is otherwise rather select. So that's one option. Good. I'm sorry, Jason. Yeah. No, I just, guys, because you're talking about this, uh, Steamer Pease writes, is there any threat on the 721 up REIT exchanges as well? Uh, well, I mean, if you were not able to do a 1031 exchange, you would not be able to basically do, you could still do an up read transaction. You can always buy, you know, a Delaware statutory trust without a 1031 exchange and do an up read, but that's not going to get you the tax deferral on the sale of your asset, right? So you need the 1031 to kind of get to that point. 
How, how should investors prepare for this might happening? Or should they do anything? Um, well, I, I think if you were, you know, so it, it's a, it's an interesting question because, you know, I think investors have to consider now the reality that tax rates, I think the one thing that will happen is I think the tax rate will go up, right? I think if anything gets passed, I think that that's something we'll see. I don't think it will be as high as 37%. Most of the experts I listen to say there might be a middle ground. It might wind up being 25%, uh, which is still really not a bad rate historically. Um, but if you know that you're, you need cash in the, in the near future, you may just want to sell in, now and cash out and pay the lower rate. Um, that makes sense. So that's one piece of planning I would suggest. Um, if you think you want to continue into another asset and do a 1031 exchange, you know, you probably want to try to get it done by the end of the year. Um, yeah, but, really but there's some alternatives, you know, and, and Michael, I, I, I don't know what I don't know, but there are some other alternatives that effectuate the tax savings and defer for years, decades on some of these, up to 30 years, you know, a, a tax deferment on the sale of your asset that isn't subject to the 1031 rules that's out there too. It's like a string of IRS codes. I, I don't remember what it's called, um, but we've seen these play out too, where you're kind of betting that the future tax rate in 30 years would be better than the tax rate today, um, or that there'll be another window of opportunity to further defer that asset again in 30 years. And there are some other specialists out there that focus on these things, but I don't know how legitimate from the IRS standpoint, you know, a view that they really are, but I have seen them happen and I, and I do taking it. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's, well, there's two things that, that probably make sense to consider. One would be the qualified opportunity zone, but I think what you're talking about is a monetized installment sale. Monetized um, installment sale. And, you know, Again, I'm not an expert in the monetized installment sale. I've talked to you know the people that pitched those over the years. Um, I think there has been some, I think there's a PLR out there that maybe casts a little bit of doubt on whether or not they would be respected. I know in the state of California, there's been some question about California respecting them. Um, I'm not here to cast aspersions on it. Again, like you said, I know what I don't know. Um, you know, but I'd be cautious because there have been things like private annuity trusts in the past have been the similar vehicle that was disallowed by the IRS. So you want to do your homework on those. And if they work, you know, then all, by all means, go for them. But you just have to be careful. Right. Yeah. Hey, guys, a lot of a lot of people are asking this, so I think we should move on to it. It's tell us about reverse 1031 exchanges, Great how they work, yeah. how common they are, pros and cons, please. Sure. So in this in, in hot markets like we've had the last several years, reverse exchanges are pretty common. You know, it's hard to quantify how many we do, um, but you know, I'm, I, I can tell you right now, in the last two three weeks, I've handled uh, like five. You know, five have come in. Um, you know, I would guess they're probably ten to fifteen percent of what we do, uh, if I had to guess as far as exchanges, but essentially it allows you to buy a replacement property before you sell your relinquished property. And the challenging part is you cannot own both properties at the same time for it to be an exchange, right? If you own two properties at the same time, you can't exchange them. So the way this would work, if you have to close on your, on your purchase before you can close on your sale, because the market's hot and many of our savvy clients are going out there and finding a property first, and then you know, knowing that they can sell their property. You can do that, but you have to basically park title to one of the two properties with us. 
as the qualified intermediary. We're actually called a um, an EAT, an exchange accommodation title holder is what the tax code re refers to it, uh, us as. Um, and essentially, we park the property with us. We set up an LLC. We typically would buy the property on behalf of the taxpayer. The taxpayer would loan us money to the extent that they were going to front the cash. And we would be the borrower for any third-party financing. We then buy the property and hold it until they sell their property. And again, they have to identify what they're selling in 45 days and close on it within 180. Once they close on it, the proceeds come to us as the qualified intermediary. And then essentially, we repay the investor for the money they advanced to us to buy that property. And then we transfer the property to them completing the exchange. So a reverse exchange is possible. And also in, in that structure, we can also use tax deferred dollars to make improvements to the property while we hold it. And, and what's the advantage for somebody to, to, what's the right person that should do the reverse 1031 as opposed to just waiting and doing it traditionally, you know, sell their property and then go identify what, what's the advantage and why should they do that? You would really only do it. Well, there's, there's two scenarios. One is if you have no choice, right? You, you're, you have a hard contract on your purchase. Uh, time of the essence has been called and you have to close and you're not ready to sell yet, right? So sometimes that's the circumstances. Another thing I've seen is people who will do, uh, let's say I'm an active business that runs my business out of this location. Maybe it's a factory, right? And I want to go buy a new factory. I want to buy a bigger factory. I want to go to a place where it's a little cheaper to do business, but I need to basically get into that factory and set it up before I can, before I can move, right? So I can't sell first. I got to get the new place ready. So I can go buy the new place in a reverse exchange, do whatever I have to do to get set up, all my licensing and permits and everything else. And then I can sell and take my time moving my, my equipment over to the new location. So we've seen so that also. It might give a buyer an, an advantage from the purchase aspect of being able to buy this property that's on the market right now and they're getting a good deal on it and they right. just know it's a good deal, I gotta buy it. But then they have to sell their, par their, their property, but that might put them at a disadvantage now because now they're the one really under the gun as far as the sell and a buyer might be right. able to take advantage of that and say, hey, well, you're under the gun, you got to sell, I want a better price, and we're going to retrade the contract. So there's some upside to doing it, but there's also some potential downside to doing. And yeah. anybody considering a reverse 1031, I, I would just really strongly, you know, have you figure out your options first before you say this is the path that I'm taking, because in a seller's market right now, it could put a little bit of risk into your eventual uh, uh, sale of your property if you're thinking about doing a reverse. Yeah, if you're already under contract on your sale, I think it works a lot better than if you're still, you know, just listing your property, right? <laughs> that that's a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Hey, so guys, what is it, like improvement exchanges, also known as construction exchanges? How is that different from a 1031? So it's the same thing. Essentially, though, you're going to use tax deferred dollars to make improvements to your property. So, for example, if if you're selling something for a million dollars, right? to basically fully defer your capital gains taxes, you got to buy for equal or greater value and use all the proceeds. So you got to buy a million dollar property, okay, to fully defer your gain. So what if you find something that's only, you can get for a steal, it's only 600,000, but it needs a ton of work. Um, you can't make improvements to the property after you buy it with 1031 money, it doesn't work because then essentially it's not part of the property. It's not like kind. So the improvements need to be made before you take title. So what happens is you sell, we again, park title with us. 
and then you have 180 days to spend the remaining $400,000. Listen, ground up construction is very hard in that 180 days, but maybe you just need to do a rehab. Maybe you're going to put it in a HVAC system, right? And you're going to drop a hundred grand on that. Uh, Maybe, you know, um, you know, maybe even on a construction project, you can get your site plan done in 180 days, you know, so you can may not need to complete the project, but you can able to spend the money on improvements to get to that tax deferred number. So you mentioned something that made me think of something else. I'm going to ask Uh, with the 1031, there are some requirements about the kind of the money you have to spend. We didn't even mention that in the beginning here. And, And it's, it's a fairly strict limit, you know, you, you know, you, that if you want to, gain the full benefit of the 1031. Right. So why, why don't you talk about sort of the minimums and the maximums on the dollar as compared to the transaction that you sold uh, to what you have? Yeah, like I said, the best way, you know, and I've, yeah, I've attended enough 1031 seminars and heard enough people talking about 1031 exchanges uh, to realize that a lot of people get hung up on the debt, right? And debt is important, but really there's only two things you need to do and make it really simple. You need to buy a property that's equal or greater in value to the one that you sold, and you need to spend all the proceeds from the sale. You do those two things, you'll fully defer your gain. Now, some people get confused because they figure like, okay, so I'm selling this property for a million dollars, but I paid 500 for it. I should get to pull that out. That's my money. I already paid taxes on that $500,000. And that's not the way it works. Unfortunately, you have to transfer that $500,000 into the new property. So the first money that goes into a new property is your cost basis. Anything that's left over is subject to taxes as part of the profit. Okay, so basically equal greater value, spend all the money. You can go down in value, but you'll pay tax on the difference. And so you want to make sure, again, if you basically bought that property for $500, you are selling it for a million, you want to buy a new property that's worth at least $500,000 plus, right? It's every dollar above your basis is what you'll save taxes on. Right. And so- that, that's but basically is, the way to look at it. If I remember correctly, there is some guidelines. Like it has to be no more than two times the amount yeah. and no less than 96% or 95% or something like that. No, that that's a that people get confused on that. That's actually an, an identification rule, right? So we talked about you have to identify the replacement property within 45 days. And the rules for that are with if you only identify because you can identify several properties and alternatives, or you can buy multiple properties. If you only identify three properties, then the value does not matter. You know, you can sell for hundred thousand dollars and identify, you know, $10 million of property. If there's only three, if you identify more than three, the total value cannot be more than double the value of what you sold. So again, if you sold for a hundred, and you identify four properties, the total value of all four together cannot be more than $200,000, okay? And if you violate that rule, that's fine as long as you buy 95% of the value of what you identified, whichever, whatever 95% of 200,000 is, um, that's what you would buy. If you basically, I usually do this with rounder numbers. Like if you sold for 450 and you bought and you identified a million dollars of property, four properties worth a million dollars, that's fine as long as you buy $950,000 worth of that property. So that's the identification rules, which is kind of a separate animal, but you can buy as much property as you want. Sure. So, so okay. Jason, it gets a little convoluted out there and it gets a little complicated, right? So uh, yeah. especially for the newbies <laughs> getting into this industry, looking to do their first exchange, you know, like that it just finally been through a nice up cycle and are ready to try and, you know, get a little further. Guys, don't take this for granted. Get in touch with guys like Michael, get in touch with your, your accountant, and, and don't 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 wing it on this one. Yeah. This yeah. is this is a hard process. 
know? Yeah. And everybody, we're talking about the 1031 exchange with uh, Michael Brady from Madison 1031 Exchange. Go to madison1031.com, hit up their contact form, send Mr. Brady an email at mbrady at madison1031.com. Guys, I want to move on. There's been a lot of really great, great questions, and there are a lot of questions that I have. So I, I'd like to hit a few. We're going to go back in time a little bit, but I'd like to start here. This is from Lola. Lola writes, is there a timeline that the intermediary title holder can hold the property? Yeah, so again, like like a forward exchange, the maximum amount of time is 180 days. Gotcha. You know, and that's the 180 days from the first closing. So in an improvement exchange, if you sell first, it's 180 days from that sale date. Gotcha. Okay, Rick. There's, other yeah, than yeah. natural disasters, and yeah. and COVID happening again, there's almost no way to extend that that 180 days. So you guys right. are under the gun, and you have to be mindful of that because that's going to be the fastest 180 days you've ever done something. <laughs> yep. All right. This is from Rick Littlejohn. Can new mobile homes be considered an improvement? And expanding upon that specifically, you sell a property at one million and have a 500k gain. We buy a new piece of land for 500k and want 500k of mobile homes. If those improvements are made before we take title, are we covered on the 1 million exchange? Uh, again, it would be an, an improvement exchange. And with mobile homes in particular, you have to be careful and you have to look at state law because um, it kind of depends whether they're considered real property, right? And mobile homes in certain cases, could be considered personal property because you know they're separate from the asset. You know, if they, you know, obviously if they have wheels on them, they're probably not going to be considered real property. But that's not most mobile homes, right? The most they're anchored to the you're ground. You're gonna have yeah. to permanently yeah. affix them. You're yeah. gonna have to relinquish the title. You're gonna have to call it and get the city or the county, or the municipality, to admit and call it that it is real property. And it's a whole separate process to get to that point. Right. And I think most states would respect that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know every the laws in every state, but there may be some states that still qualify them as, as personal sure. property, but that's, I would be surprised if that's common. All right. Paul Martins writes, with regard to the new tax rate potentially going retroactive back to April 28th, whether that happens or not, would it be advisable? Would it be to include a force majeure clause in all future sales contracts that explicitly allow a contract to be canceled based on acts of government? government action as a force majeure defense and sales contracts. You know, I think rather than do that, I wouldn't even be that oblique about it. I would just basically say, if the government raises the tax rate, I have, to, you know, I have the right to get out of the contract. If that's what your concern is, just state it. And you know, that's me as an attorney speaking. I'd rather be as specific as possible rather than try to interpret whether a tax, you know, increases a government action, right? Because a lot of them do talk, I think, force majeure clauses often do have government actions that typically relate to condemnation. Um, so you want, I would be very, very specific if I was trying to use that and be upfront with your buyer and say, you know, I'm not going to sell to you if the rate goes to 40, I'm not just not doing it. <laughs> unless, unless they're going to compensate the price to offset right. the rate going up. And guys, most contracts in most states, as far as things that I've known, everything's negotiable when it comes to what you put into these contracts and how you negotiate with the buyer or the seller. And, you know, it, it has to be a win-win for everybody. And these are the type of things that a good attorney and a good 1031 exchange and a good accountant can help you really navigate the potential exposure on future risk when it comes to these things. 
Um, and I'm not an attorney, so I'm not giving you advice. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Michael is, and, and I would and I'm still not giving you advice. He's not giving advice to you. <laughs> this is not legal advice. <laughs> um, so a, a general question that people are having, this is going back to what might happen. Would the limits on 500K a year still be the same uh, as the proposed 1031 on the 721? I'm not sure I get that. I'm guessing the question is, um, well, I mean, yeah. Is there a limit on 721, essentially, of 500K? Yeah, they're not talking about touching 721. So the only limit would be is that's all you could exchange, right? So, um, I mean, you could always put more money into it. And when they bring it up to the REIT, you should, that should still be tax deferred. But if your exchange is limited to $500,000 worth of gain, that's going to be kind of the first step, right? If you're not exchange, if you're limited in your exchange, that's going to limit what you're going to be able to up REIT. You know, it's not that it's an, a tax limitation. It's a, it's a practical limitation. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Okay. So we're going back to the thing that you said with complicated and I forgot the name of it. <laughs> it was with the partnerships. What was that again? Oh, drop and swap. Yeah. Yeah. Drop and swap. So if there are four partners in an LLC and say that only three partners want to reinvest in the purchase and one partner wants to cash out. Can the other three partners do a drop and swap and the fourth cash out? Yeah, so that's actually a little bit simpler because, you know, the partnership is going to stay intact, right? You'll have the three partners. They can maintain the partnership. They can do a couple of different things. The cleanest is if there's cash in the, in the partnership bank account, they could basically just buy out the partner before they right. do anything. But if they need to use the sale proceeds from the sale, they'll need to basically drop him out so they could, or her. So they could deed the property to that individual as a tenant in common, along with the LLC. The LLC goes forward, does an exchange with say with three quarters of the money and the other person cashes out and pays their taxes and goes on their merry way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Let's switch. We we've up. Uh, wait, wait, there's one. Yes. Yeah, we hit that. Uh, so here's the next one. We're going to talk about syndicated deals. So, what are they? And let's talk about the challenges of exchanging into or out of a syndicated deal. Yeah, sure. So by syndication, a lot of the issues are the same as the drop and swap. So by a syndication, what I'm referring to is typically you have multiple investors buying one project. Okay. And usually there are, uh, there's usually a syndicator and that would be the person who's basically running the deal. They found the property. Uh, there you line up all the investors and they bring in a bunch of passive investors to basically front most of the cash. They usually will do this under a limited liability company. Okay. And so the syndicator is going to make all the, the decisions. They'll make themselves the manager of the LLC. They'll give themselves all kinds of rights. They'll have the right to um, basically, um, you know, they may get an outsized portion of the deal compared to what they invest, like maybe they'll put 5% of the cash in, but they'll get a 20% interest in the project because essentially they're putting in sweat equity. Uh, they may have the right to, you know, a promotion fee, uh, management fee. And on the back end on the sale, they may be able to earn a commission and some other things. That's typically, you know, your typical syndicated structure. And the other people, they just sit back and they collect the mailbox money. Okay. Now the problem is if the syndicator is putting this into, into practice or putting this project together, and they have an investor who was doing a 1031 exchange and wants to buy into their project, that's a problem because they, the investor, the 1031 investor cannot buy into the LLC. They're not buying real property. That would be buying a partnership interest, which is not permitted. Okay. 
So they have to be able to buy a real property interest. And so what they could do is the LLC with the syndicator and all the other people, they could buy, let's say you're going to use simple numbers, 75% of the deal. They get a 75% tick interest, tenant common interest in the property. And the 1031 investor will get a 25%. Okay. And they can operate side by side as co-owners of the property. Syndicators don't like this, though, because with regard to that 25%, all the stuff they're doing in the other entity, they can't do with that person because that person is an individual owner of the property and is a revenue procedure um, 2002-22 if you're bored at home and want to look it up uh, that basically governs how um, or it doesn't it's overstating that it governs it, but basically gives some things that the IRS would look like in classifying something a tick transaction rather than a partnership. And so you have to have proportionate sharing of profits and management fees have to be reasonable and all this other stuff that may not be the case in a syndicated entity. Um, but that's the way you would do it. And then maybe you wait a year or two, probably two years ideally, and then you could bring that person into the LLC and treat it more as the typical syndication. So that's going in. Going out is tricky because if you're selling, if you in that syndicate and you're selling, again, the partnership is selling and if the individual investors want out, then you're in a position where you have to do a drop and swap, which we've talked about. You know a lot, Michael, and everybody <laughs> should give Michael a call because, I mean, you're just rattling it off. You can tell that uh, you have a lot of experience in this. It's incredible. On, on this stuff, what is in this next year, if you could put on your I'm the investor mindset, is there a strategy that you would say this year is you need to do these two, three things? Uh, so for this year, I think you have to keep an eye on, on Congress. And I would urge people to also get involved. Um, you know, we as an industry are lobbying and the real estate industry in general is lobbying Congress to preserve 1031. Um, there's a website, which I can give to you after for the show notes. I think it's 1031taxreform.com that, Basically, you could just fill out a form and send your representatives an email telling them that you're opposed to the, you know, the limits on 1031 exchanges. So that, that's something I think that a lot of people could do. Uh, otherwise, I would take a look at my property, right? If my property is cash flowing, um, you know, I might not want to sell. Yeah, first of all, I think valuations are crazy right now in, in many markets. And if you have a producing property, you know, maybe unless you're going to get a premium for it, you might want to sit tight. Um, if you are if you are going to be in need of cash, if you're an investor, for instance, that you know your real estate investment is for, um, in part, to pay like for a college education for a kid or something like that, it might make sense to sell now, pay the tax at the lower rate. Um, uh, Michael, how yeah, does ten yeah. how does ten thirty one how do you guys make money? How does the fee structure work? What does that look like? Yeah, so typically the way it works is we charge a flat fee, which is you know relatively inexpensive compared to the tax savings. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, I don't really want to discuss specific fees because, you know, there's antitrust things and things like that. But you're talking about, you know, from a couple hundred dollars into, you know, under two thousand dollars. Let's put it in that range, let's say, for your typical forward 1031 exchange. Wow. In addition, while we hold the money, we do we do typically earn a little bit of interest on the money. You know, not as much now as back in the days when banks paid interest. <laughs> but that that's typically the 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 profit model for most qualified intermediary companies. Reverse exchanges are significantly more expensive. And those are several thousand dollars because the risk to us in taking title to the property, usually we have to negotiate with lenders. It's a much more involved transaction. So, you know, if you have a small gain, you're probably not doing a reverse 1031. 
I would have imagined it would have been so much more expensive. So like, that was just like, oh my, that's it? I mean, I mean, whenever you're paying for something where it's the thing to get money, it's it's a no brainer. So again, go to 1031exchange.com. Glenn, do you have anything else that you want to tell everybody about 1031 Exchange that we've missed? Well, I mean, it's in my history and, and, and look, I could be wrong. I don't have crystal ball, right? Most of this stuff they tell us from the top is for like this big pandering. I'm trying to get my base riled up. And by the time it actually gets enacted, it's been watered down to something that's actually digestible and something that a lot of us can work with. I don't want to be anybody that's fear mongering, trying to get anybody all ruffled up about what's happening, you know, and, and sell, buy, hold, whatever. I'm saying follow good business practices. You know, when you when, if it's a good deal, it's a good deal. The 1031 might make it a better deal, but don't hang your hat on the 1031 making the deal make sense. You know, and you know, as, as Michael was saying, if, if you're up against the window in the next couple of years, that hey, I'm gonna probably sell in three years, you really might want to consider selling now, simply because crazy evaluations, uncertainty in the future, and all that kind of stuff. You're not gonna regret making money today. And you're not going to regret, you know, selling it in a few years and you could have made more money today than you could have in a few years. What you will regret is sitting there stressing about it, being indecisive about it, and then not pulling a trigger when you would retroactively say, oh, I should have pulled the trigger. That's that's what you don't want to find yourself into. Yeah. There's still good buys today. There's still good sales today. And tomorrow they're still going to be here. And what I've seen every single time is anytime they take something away from us, they give us something else to go figure out how to use to our advantage. And I have to believe history is going to repeat itself with that, that if they take it away, they're going to give us something else. And we're going to be, have to smarten up a little bit more to figure out how to take advantage of any new tax you know, incentives that are out there. And of course, use an accountant, your good accountant, a really good accountant. And if a you real accountant. One, you, <laughs> you, know, you call me and I'll give you mine because I, I don't know anybody better than my accountant. And I'd be happy to, to get in more business, but you guys probably all have somebody in, in your circles that can help you make a lot of these, you know, these future worries about exposure. And then when you actually need to do the exchange, call a professional, call Michael, call up Madison and, and get with them and see what they can do because they're going to help. They're going to help you understand with, with more clarity than I could ever help you understand about what's going to happen with your 1031 or what your 1031 exchange play out like. So, Call these guys. Use your professional circle. Don't sweat it. They all, they, they, you know, it's it's just change and evolve. We always do it. We always have to be able to do it. And those that are able to get with this, I think we're still going to be fine in two years. And you know, real investment, real estate, I don't see it going away anytime soon. Even if they do take away the 1031, it's just going to make us a little less uncomfortable for a while. You know, or a little more uncomfortable for a while as we adjust. Yep, absolutely. Michael, any last words from you? Yeah, I would just say, you know, I still think you know, 1031, I still think is, is one of the most valuable tools that you see in real estate. I think that, you know, what's been what the administration has determined is would be the actual tax benefit for the government is overstated. Uh, we've have studies that show that really 80%, I think of all actually maybe even more of all 1031 exchanges ultimately result in a taxable sale anyway. So it's not really a revenue producer in any large amount. So Hopefully they'll see that and they'll actually take a look, hard look at the numbers. And I think they'll ultimately agree with us and continue to let 1031 exchanges, you know, I believe continue. so too. Yeah. I believe so too. Like, and guys, if you don't know Madison group, 
Okay, you've had you guys have heard me yammer on about Yona. Okay, he's part of the Madison group. Yep. Okay, he's he's on the cost seg side of life. Okay, between oh. depreciation for real estate and between 1031 exchanges, these guys got your back. These guys, there's literally nobody better in our industry that I know of that that handles these things. And these guys are pros, and those are the two two of the best reasons to be in real estate depreciation, and then the 1031 exchange. So I would get with these guys. I'd get very familiar with their firm. And I can't say enough good things about them. I can't tell you how much money these guys have saved people. I mean, I know Yona on his side with Cosseg, and I know Michael on his side with 1031. Millions and millions and millions of dollars they save people annually. So I had no idea that they were the same company. That is two rock stars at one place. And if you haven't listened to our podcast with Yona, I learned so much from that podcast and I, I turned him on to so many of my friends and he saved them money, tons of money. So right you the got, it's crazy. And like, this is legit. Glenn and I don't blow people up if they're not great. These guys Yona's are awesome. fantastic. Yeah, they're, they're really great Michael, guys over there. This has been great. You, you blew my mind today. I, you know, it's just, you just, just blurted out everything. It's, it's just fabulous to see somebody who actually knows their business, knows exactly what, you know, you know, what to say about these things and has some actual insight as to the mechanisms within this industry and, and how to, you know, and how to use them. I mean, this, this is fabulous. You've been great. Uh, Jason, do we have any more questions? It looks like we have no, no. This, so this is it. I'm just going to say how to get in touch with Michael. If you'd like to get in touch with Michael, go to madison1031.com. They've got a great contact form. Their phone numbers, toll free 1-800-970-1031. That's 1-800-970-1031. And the easy way, reach out to Mr. Brady at M Brady, B-R-A-D-Y at Madison1031.com. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Real pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you for the kind words as well. This has been fun. And Glenn, if you want to get in touch with Glenn Esterson, you can email Glenn at gesterson at themhpexpert.com. You can call his awesome vanity number at 720-MHP4U. You got it right. I did. I wrote it down, Glenn. I'm not going to say that I remembered it. Uh, And you can go to Glenn's site at themhpexpert.com. I want to say a special thanks to all who joined the podcast today. Please make sure to keep your eyes out next week for the digital audio version on all platforms and the video on YouTube. Please share it and get the word out about the advantages of 1031 exchanges. For the Mobile Home Park Expert Podcast, I'm Jason Sroten, and we'll see you next time.